So let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty Father, tonight we learn about the greatest of all prayers, the prayer that leads us most closely to your divine will, to the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Tonight we learn about the prayer of the most holy sacrifice of the Mass, which we learn all about the life of Jesus, his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. We thank you for this gift. Help us to learn about the Mass and all the many different expressions, which are ultimately expressions of your love. Help us to be more faith-filled, especially as we come near uh, this Christmas season in which you send your only begotten Son for the sake of our salvation. Hear and answer our prayers. Be with us tonight. Ask especially for the protection of our Mother Mary as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Peter, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Good to see everyone tonight. It's hard to believe it's our last session before the Christmas break and into January. So we'll get started. Last week we talked about Mary. We talked about the four dogmatic truths of Mary and just looking at the communion of saints. How does the church view Mary as the greatest of all saints? And then the communion of saints following her. So if you didn't get a packet, we have plenty of those you can get after class. But today is just really a summary as well as just simply a run-through of the Mass. This class is a great one for, you can just raise your hand at any point, and like, Father, what's this? Or, Father, I know we say these prayers or these words within the Mass. Uh, the Mass explained here, I'm just going to kind of look at the introductory rites, and then I have two other PowerPoints on the Liturgy of the Word, breaking down what are all the parts comprised of the Liturgy of the Word, and then the Liturgy of the Eucharist. So if we're looking at the Mass, more or less, we can break it down into, it's still one liturgy, it's still one prayer, but there's two particular parts, the liturgy of the word, where we're focusing, of course, on God's word revealed in sacred scripture, which then is still directed to the liturgy of the Eucharist, which is the source and summit of our faith. So it's not a competition, oh, well, the liturgy of the word is better than the Eucharist, liturgy of the Eucharist. No, there are two essential parts which make up the one perfect true prayer of the church. So really... If you want to look at that sheet, we're just going to really go along the order of the Mass, and I'm just going to go through it slow. Again, at any point, if you have questions, feel free. Oh yeah, I guess before I do that, though, Justin Martyr, we've made reference to him on a few occasions, so I gave you a handout, front and back. Justin Martyr, one of the Church Fathers, and I mentioned this last week, that at some point, as uh, people learn about the faith, the Catholic faith, at some point, more often than not, we have an encounter with the Church Fathers and what the Church Fathers teach with respect to the basic understanding of the faith. So Justin Martyr was in the early 2nd century, very close to the time of Christ following his death. He knew the apostles well and so forth. He was before the emperor, Roman emperor at the time. He was executed for the faith as a martyr. But he's making a presentation of why he himself is Catholic, and then he essentially gives an overview of what it means to be Catholic and these great mysteries of the faith that they are celebrating. So this is from his first apology. He wrote two apologies. But the last 
let's see, there are three paragraphs. This is the conclusion of the first apology, and he gives a beautifully precise overview of what the Mass is. So even in the second century, we'll read this. I'm just going to read through it carefully. So if you want to underline some stuff or put a question mark, circle, you won't necessarily understand everything, but just kind of what your understanding of the Mass is right now, think of that as we read through this, and there will be elements that you see, and it shows the universality of what the Mass truly is. So I'll just go ahead and read through this before we get into uh, PowerPoints, per se. Just a martyr states, but we, after thus washing the one who has been convinced and has assented to our instruction, lead him to those who are called brethren, where they are assembled. And we offer prayers in common for ourselves and for the one who has been illuminated and for all others everywhere, that we may be accounted worthy, having learned the truth, by our deeds also to be found good as citizens and guardians of what is commanded, so that we may be saved with eternal salvation. Having ended the prayers, we greet one another with a kiss. Then there is brought to the ruler of the brethren bread and a cup of water and a cup of wine mixed with water. And he taking them sends up praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and offers thanksgiving at some length for our being accounted worthy to receive these things from him. When he has concluded the prayers and the thanksgiving, all the people present, or all the people present assent by saying, Amen. Amen in the Hebrew language signifies, so be it. And when the ruler has given thanks and all the people have assented, those who are called by us deacons give to each of those present a portion he makes this term of the Eucharistized uh, bread and wine and water, and they carry it away to those who are absent. So there's a lot I could say at this point, but that last line, and they carry it away to those who are present. So think of the acolytes, think of the Eucharistic ministers as the priest gives the Eucharist to them to then go off to the homebound, to the people. So even in the second century, they were doing all of that. And this food is called among us the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake except one who believes that the things which we teach are true, and has received the washing that is for the remission of sins and for rebirth. So there you're already hearing images of uh, the sacraments of baptism and confession, which we'll look at next uh, semester, so to speak. And whoso lives as Christ handed down. For we do not receive these things as common bread nor common drink. But in like manner as Jesus Christ, our Savior, having been incarnate by God's logos, took both flesh and blood for our salvation. So also we have been taught that the food Eucharistized through the word of prayer that is from him, from which our blood and flesh are nourished by transformation, is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who became incarnate. For the apostles and the memoirs composed by them which are called gospels, thus handed down what was commanded them. That Jesus took bread and having given thanks said, do this for my memorial. This is my body. And likewise, he took the chalice and having given thanks said, this is my blood and gave it to them alone. Which also the wicked demons have imitated in the mysteries of Mithra. Yeah, Justin Martyr had a great understanding of Greek mythology, which in the second apology, he then uses that knowledge in order to show this Greek mythology stuff. 
great, but we have someone who is higher and greater, the Almighty God, and so forth. So he's really just using that in order to make a greater argument of faith for the Catholic Church and hand it down to be done. For that bread and a cup of water are placed with certain words said over them and the secret rites of initiation you either know or can learn. And afterward, we constantly remind each other of these things. And the wealthy come to the aid of the poor, and we are always together. Over all that we receive, we bless the Maker of all through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has finished, the ruler in a discourse, or a homily, instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all stand up together and offer prayers, general intercessions. And as we said before, when we have finished the prayer, bread is brought and wine and water. And the ruler likewise offers up prayers and thanksgivings to the best of his ability and the people assent, saying the Amen. And the distribution and the partaking of the Eucharistized elements is to each, and to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. And those who prosper, and so wish, contribute what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the ruler, who takes care of the orphans and widows, and those who, on account of sickness or any other cause, are in want. And those who are in bonds, and the strangers who are sojourners among us, and in a word, he is the guardian of all those in need. But we all hold this common gathering on Sunday, since it is the first day on which God, transforming darkness and matter, made the universe. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. For they crucified him on the day before Saturday, and on the day after Saturday, he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them these things, which we have passed on to you also for your consideration which is a final parting shot. You know, I'm just offering all these things for your consideration. Yeah, I know you're likely going to kill me, but just so you know the fullness of the truth, here it is. So, I mean, you can take this and read through it. There's so many powerful meditations and just, like I said, a snapshot of the Mass. We don't have to do it right now. It's like they had this from the moment that Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to the apostles, the Great Commission. Like, we have that uh, right here. So, fascinating uh, account that just a martyr gives of the mass which is that great prayer all right so let's open up our booklet and we'll just start at the beginning here i'm just going to look at the introductory rites and kind of just what it is that we're actually doing because every single minute detail i mean this start or the overview of the mass like we could spend the whole semester if not more on this alone just because there's so many theological insights and overviews and because the mass is the perfect prayer there's so many things that is a mystery we don't even know the fullness of it so it's very rich it's very uh, deep but we'll try and give an overview of so forth so like i said two primary parts of the mass is the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the eucharist but the first part of the liturgy of the word is the introductory rites which is on the first page so it's the beginning of the mass the entrance rite it can be broken up into four parts the procession the sign of the cross, penitential rites, the gloria, and the opening prayer colic. So we'll look at all these in depth in the following slides. But really, the whole purpose of the entrance rite is to establish communion, very much what Justin Martyr was talking about. We're all gathering in one place to be united, to pray individually, to pray communally on behalf of God our Father. God doesn't need these prayers. 
we ourselves who are broken, who are sinful, we need a Savior. It's us who are being nourished. It's us who are being edified in body and spirit when we come together and pray as one body in Christ. So it's about communion, disposing ourselves to listen to the Word of God and equally to celebrate the Eucharist worthily. All right, so the entrance antiphon, it's not, it's not mentioned in here, but uh, the entrance antiphon or the opening <coughs> hymn, we're all singing a hymn of some sort. We're chanting together in unison. So this is the beginning of the celebration of the Mass. It fosters unity among the faithful. We're not just singing words for the sake of singing words, but everything, depending on what part of the liturgical season we're in, it all is geared towards that particular celebration. So whether it's the fourth Sunday in Advent or the tenth Sunday in Ordinary Time or the third Sunday in Lent, like everything has a particular meaning within the liturgical year that it's drawing us to uh, in that sense. So we're drawn into the mystery of the liturgy within the particular time of the season and the celebration, and we're accompanying then the priests, the ministers, everyone who's walking up the processional aisle with them. So many voices joining together as one voice. It's one proclamation of faith. It's not, you know, here at St. Peter's, yes, it's individual and communal, but it's not necessarily 500 uh, proclamations of a personal faith, per se. It's not our own gospel according to Father Worth and gospels according to you or faith according to you. No, it's my own person praying with everyone to the Father in that sense, because we are one body, because we're all coming to one place. So the entrance antiphon is just really fostering that union and communion and so forth. All right, so the procession takes place as the entrance antiphon is chanted. So if you've been to Mass on Sunday, we sing an opening hymn, maybe a verse or two, and then we do the entrance antiphon as the priest is incensing the altar and everything in there. So the order, you have the thurifer, who's the person that holds the incense, the smoke, uh, and all that. So it's the sacrifice as we incense the altar. We're offering that smoke, that sacrificial offering to the Lord in that sense. We have the cross, the lector who holds the gospel, the book, and then the servers with candles. So being led by the cross and also the smoke, we're being led uh, towards heaven. It's that cross. Jesus is leading us to the gates of heaven. We're, we're walking towards the center, which is the tabernacle, the altar, we're all being led in that journey as Christians, as Catholics, as one family in Christ. And this is made possible by the liturgy, the greatest gift that God has given to us. It's an opportunity for us to give worship and praise to God who has given us everything as Father and Creator. So this procession then, all the people in this processional order is representing each and every one of you. It represents us, the faithful, on this journey with Christ to heaven. So I think the best understanding of the procession is Palm Sunday. So you think of Jesus riding on the donkey. Everyone is laying down the palms so the donkey can walk along this to place their cloaks down, this reverence to Jesus, Hosanna in the highest to this great king. But then think about the Mass itself. So the priest is walking, he's processing in, the priest who is serving in the person of Christ in persona Christi. And yet by the time you get to the sacrifice, the Eucharistic prayer at the elevation of the Eucharist, it's the same thing. Three days pass by, and everyone who's claiming this king goes on in the highest, they now want to crucify him, and he's led on his passion and death. So like all of us enter into that mystery. All of us are part of that mystery. And it's not to condemn us like, oh, woe is me, I'm a sinner, and all these things. But no, it is a 
mysterious way to enter more fully into God's love of recognizing where we're at in this procession, like we're preparing even as we're driving to Mass. So like, how do we prepare to Mass? Or we just think, oh, I got to get ready. I got to do this. I'm listening to music or I'm not listening to anything or just trying to just make it on, on time and stuff. Like every single thing leading to that procession, like we're taking part in that as well. So kind of like this Palm Sunday uh, procession. I think it's a good way to understand what is actually happening in this procession. So it might just seem like, oh yeah, it's time for Mass. Father's just walking up the processional aisle before the sign of the cross. But like, no, like I said, every single thing has liturgical significance or a theological significance. So it's Jesus who is invited by the people, praised by the people, is ultimately, as he knows, he's walking into his suffering, his passion and death, which leads to the resurrection. Yes. Thurifer is simply the person who holds the thurible, so the thing that has the smoke, the incense in it. Thurifer is just the person who holds the thurible. So thurible is the actual instrument. Thurifer is the one that holds the thurible. Yeah. So just a fancy name for that. Yep. But he goes first because he's the one that's leading the smoke and just like just like when we light candles, the smoke that's offered, it's just ultimately an offering given to the Lord. So. All right, so with the, literally the greeting, the sign of the cross begins Mass. So we're simply calling on God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Trinitarian uh, essence of God. So it's the proper beginning to all prayer. Or even when we all touch the holy water, we make the sign of the cross. It reminds us of our own baptism. So it's a very powerful prayer, even though it's very simple, we might not necessarily think of it. The sign of the cross is one of the most beautiful, powerful prayers that we have. And one of my favorite stories of that is St. Anthony. I think I've told this before, but Anthony of the desert, who's sleeping or praying, he was attacked by a legion of demons trying to get him to uh, deny the faith, reject the faith, and more or less said, why are you bother me? Depart from me. He just simply made one reverent sign of the cross, and all this legion of demons just immediately dispelled and wanted nothing to do with him. But, like, think about it. We're praying... The name of God in his three persons, who is literally the source of all creation. Like, the devil wants something to do with that. So even just simply dipping our finger into the holy water and remembering our baptism, like becoming children of God through the sacrament, in that sense, is powerful. So we start all good things with uh, the sign of the cross. We say, the Lord be with you, uh, the priest does. So again, it's just in that one line, it's reassuring you, the people of God's divine love for you. Fidelity to be with each person, to be with each family uh, within the Mass. God is offering a promise of his presence in your lives to fulfill the apostolic mission he gives to us as his disciples. So the Lord at that moment, and he's going to continue to manifest his love throughout the Mass, but just immediately with one statement after the Son of the Cross, the Lord be with you. The Lord at that point fills us with his presence. Like there's something different about this moment. So it's kind of maybe thinking of Moses in front of the flaming uh, bush. He's in awe, like, take your uh, sandals off or put, yeah, for its holy ground. And he's just immediately like, this place is unlike any other place. That's what we're at uh, with the Mass. And you, the people, respond to the priest and with your spirit. So again, it's not just a mere friendly gesture. Oh, yeah, hey, what's up, Father? Good to see you. But it's like, no, you're recognizing my ordination, any priest's ordination. Like, I have been given that fullness of the spirit in order to serve the sacrifice of the Mass for your behalf, for my behalf, for all of our behalf, uh, to offer this perfect sacrifice uh, to the Father in that sense. So it's you recognizing me. Yes, this is a priest. He is serving in the person of Christ for the sake 
of the people. So it's really powerful just in that one little response. There's a lot of theological depth. Uh, then we move to the penitentiarite. So this can take several forms. Usually on Sunday we'll do the confidior. So I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned. So all that's there. So there are multiple options. So there's three primary options. Uh, so the Kyrie, which is Greek for Lord, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. You can have what are called tropes. So for weekday mass, uh, you'll have, and there are multiple uh, options, but uh, you were sent to heal the contrite of heart, Lord have mercy. That's an example of a trope. Now you can't just make up your own tropes as my uh, seminary professor at the seminary says, just like, you know, you can't just get up there and like, Lord Jesus, you're really cool and really great. Lord have mercy. Lord Jesus, you are awesome in so many ways. Christ have mercy. Like, no, like, of the options they have, it's something like one of them focuses on Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Another one recognizes the relationship between uh, Mary and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So all of them are church approved. It's not just, oh, I'm a priest and I'm serving in the person of Christ, so I can just make up on the spot in a grace-filled way, like perfect trope, so to speak. So like, I don't want to put that on myself. I'm going to do what's in the missile and... They know the <clears throat> prayer is much better than I do, and I want what's le legitimate and traditional in that sense. Now, I could, any priest, could they make something that's very beautiful? Sure. But it would still need to be approved by the church if they wanted to add that or something like that. So, uh, But the penitentiarite is uh, very good, a re recognition of our own sinfulness, a need for a Savior. Anytime we engage in the penitentiarite, and we really thoroughly just take a quick examination of conscience, it's great because every time we pray it at Mass, it cleanses us of all venial sin. Now, I wouldn't... Priests have some charitable debates on this. If you, can still, if you go to confession before Mass, like 30 minutes before Mass, I would still encourage you, if you know of venial sins, or like strong venial sins or whatever, like, I still encourage you to bring that to confession in the sense like you still receive particular graces for those venial sins. And especially if it's something that's going to heaven forbid lead to a serious mortal sin down the road then like receive grace in that way. But when we fully participate in the penitential, right, we're thinking of, okay, snapshot of the last week, where could I have been better sins of omission, things I failed to do and all these things we do receive the fullness of forgiveness there. Our venial sins are washed away there. So, in the season of Advent, it's kind of a cool recognition in this uh, baptism of repentance that John the Baptist speaks of, which ultimately is leading to that sacramental reception of uh, baptism from Jesus. So it is a sort of preparation in that sense. Which then, after we pray the penitentiarite, the Gloria. Gloria is simply that joy-filled response. So in Advent and Lent, we don't sing the Gloria or uh, chant or pray the Gloria just with Words, because we're expecting a Savior, we're expecting the greatest mysteries of our faith, one at Christmas, the Incarnation, and then during Lent, of course, uh, the Resurrection. But we're glorifying God for who He truly is. He is our Lord and our Savior. So it's a proclamation of faith. It's praying through the Paschal Mystery, the great joy that happens when Jesus comes into the world for the sake of our salvation. So begging for mercy in the penitential rite, it actually prepares us to receive that very mercy. God hears our prayer. He's like, okay, I'm going to hear your prayer and answer your prayer by sending my beloved son, Jesus. 
And now, thanks be to God, literally, is the expression of the Gloria. So then after the Gloria, we come to the opening prayer, which is properly called the Collect. So when the priest says, let us pray, it's the prayer that follows there. So the Collect is gathering all of your individual prayers, and it's still going to have a certain theme based on that Sunday an ordinary time or Advent or Lent. So there's going to be a general theme, but it's still taking all of your individual prayers or your family prayers into consideration. And it's praying on behalf of you, the priest praying on behalf of you, the people to God, the father through Jesus, who is God, the son and in God, the Holy spirit through prayer. So you really have that Trinitarian aspect of taking all of your prayers and petitions and drawing them to the heart of God, the father, son and Holy spirit. All right, so that is the introductory right. So again, for being introductory, there's plenty of things to meditate on, think about uh, there, and that's only one aspect of the liturgy of the Word. So, A question was asked here about what is the difference between mortal and venial sins. Father Worth answers it with this explanation. So mortal sin is three conditions have to be met for a sin to be mortal or serious. It has to be grave or serious. You have to have full knowledge, and you have to fully consent to it. So, in other words, it's seriously wrong, you know it's seriously wrong, and you do it anyway. Now, let's say, so like uh, Sunday Mass. If one knowingly knows it's either a Sunday or holy day of obligation, which that's serious, so grave and serious sometimes can be synonymous. Serious in the sense like, no, God is telling me as a Catholic to go to Mass on Sunday. And he's like, eh, I just don't feel like it. So you fully consent to that and you fully know it's a Sunday or a Holy Day of Obligation. Yeah, I don't care. I just, I'm not going to go. Like that would be mortal versus, let's say you didn't have full knowledge like, oh, it's a Holy Day of Obligation. Let's say like you become Catholic and you're still learning the dates of Holy Days and like, oh, well, if I would have known it's a Holy Day of Obligation, I would have gone. Well, you didn't have full knowledge. You didn't fully consent to that because had you have known, you clearly would have gone. So venial sin, uh, one mortal sin that we know that's on our soul, uh, that then we are completely devoid of God's sanctifying grace. So God's life is completely out of us. So anytime we have a mortal sin, even if we have one on our conscience, we go to confession immediately. Venial sins, uh, we still have some of God's sanctifying grace within us but it just kind of like blows here or there and we're slowly losing. But with venial sins, that's why we have the mass because they're easy to add up venial sins, but you don't have to go to confession. Uh, absolutely speaking, uh, if you have venial sins, but a mortal sin where it completely cuts us off from God's life and God's grace, that's why it's so serious because we're knowingly saying no to God or it's basically, a, I see your charity, I refuse it out of a prideful act, so to speak, in that sense. So think of like uh, two glasses of water. You have like some sediment, some rocks, and some dirt. That'd be like venial sin, so it's not perfectly clear water. But let's say you have another glass of water and you take a vial of red food coloring and you just drop it. You could even do one little drop of that food coloring and it would just saturate the entire glass that would be an example of a mortal sin it completely contaminates all the water whereas you could still drink some of the other glass maybe that first half before you get to the rocks and sediment but you know like okay i don't want to drink that that's that's not good so 
Yeah, good question. So mortal sin, serious or grave matter, full knowledge, full consent. All three of those have to be met for it to be mortal sin. All right, so the liturgy of the word. So this we come to understand primarily as there is a first reading, which comes from the Old Testament. There's a responsorial psalm, which comes from the 150 psalms. There is a second reading, which usually comes from Paul and one of his epistles. There are occasions where it doesn't come from Paul, so you might have a letter from 1 John or James or Peter or uh, Philemon. So there are a few exceptions, but 95% of the time, their second reading is going to come from one of Paul's uh, letters. So the three liturgical languages, we look at Galatians 4. Verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son. So in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, it's ultimately drawing us to Theos, the Deus, God Almighty himself. So, But as Catholics, we're focused on the Word. We're focused on Jesus, who is the Word himself, as John 1 uh, beautifully describes. So we're focused on the Word and all of his words as teaching, as truth itself. So we're not focused on just words as words, but the Word who is Jesus Christ himself. Everything is drawing us to God as the source of all creation. All right, so what does the Word of God do? From Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating even between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to discern reflections and thoughts of the heart. So again, Jesus is the word. It's not just, oh, I'm listening to this, this is good, but like there might be one word, it might be a statement. You might hear it a hundred times, that hundred first time, depending on what's going on in your life, it can just shatter you. Or it could be like the most joy-filled message of hope that you can receive. So it's a double-edged sword in that sense. It can cause us great pain, not because we're just gonna lie in that pain and misery forever, but like maybe it's something that the Holy Spirit places on our heart to recognize so that we can receive that reconciliation or that healing or that forgiveness, that word of encouragement that the Lord knows that we need to hear at that point. So just because we hear the gospel infinite number of times, like we could hear the gospel or the prodigal son a thousand times. Well, that thousand and first time, we might hear it in a completely new way. And the gospel in that sense, the word is truly infinite. and We can always receive some message of hope. Uh, why does the word matter to you and I? So Second Timothy all scripture is inspired by God, so as we were saying, and is useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that one who belongs to God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So as I was saying, we are a people of the word. We are not a people of a mere book or even a great book. This book is unlike any other because it is Jesus himself, the words that he teaches as the supreme uh, teacher, that great rabbi. Can I just, I just want to yeah. peel that back a little bit. So, again, what's the difference between the Word and the book? So the Word is a person. So you're talking about the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. When we capitalize Word, W, yeah, we're talking about so then Jesus. what's the relationship between the person of Christ mm-hmm. and the Bible? So the distinction, the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. And so like right now we're hearing from the book of Isaiah. So everything that Isaiah is talking about is directing us to the person of Christ. So what 
is spoken of in the Old Testament is eventually revealed and fulfilled in the New Testament. And then what is in the New Testament, we can draw back to the Old Testament. So everything is converging then on that person of Christ. All the words in the Bible is the word himself, Jesus Christ. So everything, it's this fulcrum point. Everything in the Bible, Old and New Testament, is just converging on the rock, the, the capital W word, God, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay, so, but the reason I'm pressing on this is mm -hmm. because from a Protestant perspective, which is where I come from yep. as well, the, uh, the word is emphasized, mm -hmm. but not necessarily the church. There's faith in the word, yeah. but not the church. And well, so, then it probably comes into like the canonical, right. what's canon, what's not canon. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and I guess so the book, so what would be an example of the book? In, in other words, if we're trying to differentiate between the word and the book, what's, the, what, what's people of the book, what does that mean? So I'd say like for the Quran or something like that, everything for them is just, oh, if it's not found in here, then like that's it. So like we got to focus, they just become so set on... Not necessarily sola scriptura argument, but like we have a revelation, we have tradition, we have all these other things, but everything is focused on Jesus, who is our salvation, as opposed to just simply a book or the Quran. Like you might have other books that, ha like the Quran, like there are certain aspects of the Quran that are good that are in conformity with Christian Catholic teaching. It just doesn't go far enough. But for them, it's like, nope, this is our book. This is our where we find our so-called salvation, when in fact it doesn't have the full teaching of the church, the Catholic, the one true faith in that sense. Would Jews then be considered people of the book as well? Of the book, or like they have the Torah. They have, So again, part of it, they have part of the truth, but not the fullness of the truth, which is why the canon of sacred scripture is so important. Yep. Uh, the homily is not just, oh, Father's going to talk because... He really wants to talk and be long-winded, but the homily, especially in Sunday canon law, uh, the homily is an essential part of the Mass. So it's to give an overview of the readings for that Sunday. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So ideally, again, priests, hopefully priests are preaching equally, if not more so, to themselves, as opposed to just, this is a me versus you thing, so a theology versus a meology, like, oh, well, I'm greater and holier than you because I'm your priest, like, well, that's a load of garbage because all of us are in it together. Just because I'm a priest, yeah, my vocation is a little bit different, doesn't mean that I don't need the saving words of Christ uh, as much as all of you do. So not making it about me, myself, and I, but theology versus theology. All right. So let's see. Anything with the liturgy of the word? So we're sitting. Just as Jesus in the temple, they all would have been seated hearing the words. It's easier to uh, reflect for those the first reading, the responsorial psalm, the second reading, out of reverence for Christ, who is the word for the gospel, we all stand out of reverence for him. Uh, so on the handout sheet here, I'll read that point. So it says the gospel, it's different than just reading the scriptures on our own. But when the gospel is proclaimed at the liturgy, it is Christ, the word who is proclaimed. Christ himself is speaking to us through the priest. Uh, so when 
priest says the Lord be with you, with your spirit, when he marks uh, the gospel, and then his own forehead, his lips and mouth. So seal it. these words, or this word in my mind, seal Christ in my lips, seal Christ in my heart. And then uh, the gospel of the Lord, when the priest embraces the gospel, he also says the prayer which none of you hear, it's silent, but through the words of the gospel, may our sins be wiped away. Yes. Why is that one silent? It's personal prayer for the priest. <clears throat> so there's a lot of personal prayers, so I'm going to try and go through some of them, but personal prayers that you'll see in the Roman Missal that the priest says to himself, uh, <clears throat> it's not because, oh, well, it's forbidden for you, the lady, to hear. It's just for him to more faithfully engage in the Mass and like offering the Mass for the sake of you, the people. So he still has the best interest of the people in mind, hopefully, more often than not, but... Yeah, it's just an intentional of like me by me saying the word silently. It's placing that intention. What am I supposed to be doing? What's my the context of my mind? What am I supposed to be thinking about here in that sense? Yep. Priest does not have to give a homily for weekday masses, but for Sunday masses, the homily is absolutely uh, necessary because that is part of the solemnity as mass on Sunday. The homily following the readings is uh, necessary, which is different from weekday masses. Okay, so following the homily, we have the Creed. So in the Jewish Old Testament, known as the Shema, Apostles' Creed. This is a Roman baptismal profession, which we had all these different uh, councils, as Blake and I were talking about. You think about the words of the Creed, the, you know, like identifying the Trinity and all these great mysteries of our faith. That is difficult, don't get me wrong, but like the hardest part of the Creed was like the prepositions. So the ins, the ofs, the by, uh, the concept, consubstantial, so like one iota difference literally cause heretics and sects of people to just leave the church or be frustrated with the church or like, oh, I guess I'm a heretic because I believe in this. So it's like those prepositional words are really what bring the creedal faith together because if it's any different, then it's just going to create a completely different creed from what we uh, proclaim as Catholics. So... But belief is a precursor to the gift of faith. So belief in God, his existence. We profess a belief in God's nature or his essence. One God, three persons. Belief that his message is true and his message is good. So the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Similar but uh, different aspects. So in the Apostles' Creed, as I mentioned last week, that's where it talks about celebrating and understanding the communion of the saints. Whereas in the Nicene Creed, we don't have that part, but it's not saying, oh, because we don't believe it and they're in opposition with each other, but just different aspects of the faith to consider as those most important aspects as a whole. So what is it that makes us Catholic? That's what we profess in the Creed. The general intentions of the prayers of the faithful, that's synonymous. It acknowledges our dependence upon our Father. So from the Catechism, we are creatures who are not our own Beginning, we are not the masters of adversity. We are not our own last end. So if you notice a general theme or order within the general intentions, it's because the church lays it out. So you're generally going to pray for the Holy Father. You'll pray for bishops in the church, so local ordinary, our own bishops, so Bishop Conley, uh, the priests, the laity, the religious. You'll pray for our government leaders. Uh, you'll pray for uh, the sick, the suffering. You'll include the souls in purgatory. So... It's good to follow that general order, so to speak, so that you're covering the most important aspects. Or like right now, there could be particular <coughs> tragedies or world crises 
stuff like that, it's good to incorporate general intentions for that. Uh, but the prayers of the faithful, it should be particular to us in Nebraska and the Lincoln Diocese, but also recognizing the needs of the universal church. So we're praying for universal and local all in one, the prayers of the faithful. So we got through the creed, the universal prayer. So after the universal prayer, the priest gives his final prayer. Uh, Hear and answer our prayers for what we ask for in humility and faith. You be still in us in your love and mercy through Christ our Lord. Amen. At that point, the liturgy of the word concludes. We move to the liturgy of the Eucharist and so forth. So right when the altar is being prepared by the acolytes, that's the beginning of the liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, the offertory usually will try and have a family. It's not always the case, but you can have a family. Bring up the gifts, so the bread, the wine, uh, the container, which is called the saboria, which holds the hosts that are going to be consecrated. So it's nice to have that family aspect, like the tribes of Israel bringing up their offerings uh, to be sanctified at the altar. So you see that theological significance. The priest will accept the offerings. They'll give a blessing, bring it to the altar, which then starts the uh, liturgy of the Eucharist. I want to point out one thing here. Okay. So this is on Verbum. So this is what I was talking about. This right over here is the liturgy or the Roman Missal. So like I was saying, do the red, say the black. Here's the offertory prayer. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we've... But all the instructions are in red. Now, I've said enough masses. Priests have celebrated enough masses. We know what to do, but this is giving us instructions. So like, here, the priest, standing at the altar, takes the patent with the bread and holds it slightly raised above the altar with his hands, saying in a low voice. So it's literally telling us what we need to do as we're celebrating uh, the mass there. But I bring this part of the liturgy of the Eucharist up because my, uh, one of my scripture professors, he was a Calvin, Calvinist background Protestant uh, minister, preached for many years, great, great knowledge of sacred scripture. But on our Holy Land trip, he was talking about, you know, what made him want to convert to the faith. He and his wife were very devout Calvinist uh, family, but he said it was actually these offertory prayers. And people will get into frustration. Well, these are Jewish Todah prayers, like sacrificial offering prayers. They don't really connect as much as they should. That's a different story. I'm not going to get into all that. But he said for us, it was the final push that we needed because you read this. Mere bread and wine is brought and it's made into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you fruits of the earth, and work of human hands. And he said it's the last line that did him in. It will become for us the bread of life. And then the same thing, more or less. Oh yeah, I'll get to the other prayer in a second. So here's an example, Trey, of a prayer that the priest says. I'll get to that in a second. Same thing with the wine. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you, fruits of the vine and work of human hands. It will become our spiritual drink. So why is this such a big deal for um, this scripture professor at uh, the Mount who became Catholic? Well, if you look at John 6 in the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus is, again, multiple, many times, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you, all these things. But it's like, okay, well, we didn't necessarily have an issue with that. We were coming to terms with that. But what made that make sense was... So if you look at John 6, 
uh, verses uh, 60 to 63. I'm really focused on 63, but this point, he said it over times, many times, I'm the bread of life unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood. The Jews have already started fighting amongst themselves. How can this be? Is he really talking about what I think he's talking about and so forth? To which then Jesus says, Then many of his disciples who were listening said, The saying is hard. Who can accept it? Since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So 63. It is the Spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. The words, these words, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, over the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So what Jesus more or less is establishing here is a natural life, and with the words of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, a supernatural life. So going back to these offertory prayers, yes, according to the natural world, we are offering mere bread and wine. According to the natural world, okay, great, this provides us a physical sustenance, so be it. But those last two lines, it will become for us the bread of life. It will become our spiritual drink. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is spirit in life. It is the spirit, which we'll get to in a second at the epiclesis, which is in your sheet. It's asking God the Father to send down the Holy Spirit to sanctify, to bless these gifts, which then at the words of Jesus Christ instituted at the Last Supper, the Holy Spirit is consecrating all of this into that spiritual, that supernatural food. So once they made that connection with the offertory prayers, it will become, because Jesus said so through the Holy Spirit, who he sends at Pentecost upon us and the apostles, it will become for us the bread of life, supernatural life. It will become our supernatural spiritual drink, his very body, blood, soul, and divinity. So you might want to take that to prayer, but I'd never heard that before. And from that Protestant Calvinist perspective, that really made me uh, start thinking. So everyone gets all focused on, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood. But without that little snippet, the fullness of John 6 really doesn't make sense. It's really showing the necessity of God the Father, Son, and Spirit in this great mystery. All right. So in this prayer right here, after I do that first uh, with the bread, it will become for us the bread of life. Blessed be God forever. That's when I pour the water and wine into the chalice. So with each crew, I pour the wine and I'm praying this as it says. The deacon or priest pours wine and a little water into the chalice, saying quietly. So I make the sign of the cross with each of the cruets. By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ. Stop. Grab the wine or the water cruet, make the sign of the cross, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And just a tiny drop of water, because if I pour too much water in, then is it still chemistry base is it still wine then i'm gonna to have to pour more wine in. so you don't want to pour too much wine or water into the wine so you make sure that it's actually wine so it becomes blood but there it's a co-mingling it's jesus's divinity and that humanity so that mingling of blood and water from jesus's side like it shows that reality like even in this advent season it's a nice meditation of jesus taking on human flesh blood and water for our sake so even though that's silent to me like it's me offering that and for my own sake, what am I actually doing here? Oh, yeah, Jesus is about to be present on the altar right now for the sake of the people. So in that sense, that's one example of other prayers. There's not too many prayers that priest says silently, but that's one example of something that happens during the liturgy of the Eucharist. So kind of cool. When you see me doing that, then you can think about those words like, oh, yeah, Jesus' divinity and humanity. It's 
now being poured into that cup, which the Holy Spirit's going to bless, and then a further blessing when the words of consecration actually uh, take place. So then, yeah, after, that's another prayer here. When the priest does this, with humble spirit and contrite heart, may we, accept, may we be accepted by you, O Lord, and may our sacrifice in your sight this day be pleasing to you, Lord God. The washing of the hands, which, again, this is my own personal thing. I know other priests don't do it, but I like it to step away if this is the altar. I want to step as far away as possible from the altar when I wash my hands. And then I look at Jesus, again, placing my own mind in the right context of if I have any sins that I have not confessed or don't know about, like I want my hands completely purified and washed away from all sins so that I can offer the most pure sacrifice on behalf of myself as your priest and for the sake of the people. So when you remove yourself from the, because you're saying the words, wash me, O Lord, from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. So I don't want to have any intermingling of my personal sinfulness or whatever within this sacrifice. So I personally move away from the altar. I look at Jesus like, please forgive me. Step back to the altar and then everyone stands. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable. In that sense. So with that, yeah, we're running out of time. Like I said, you can get very deep into all this stuff. You have the, the preface is just the prayer before the holy, holy, holy. So you, it's a particular prayer, again, depending on what uh, liturgical season that you're in. But same thing, similar to the collect. You're addressing God the Father through Christ uh, in the Holy Spirit in that prayer. We're asking all the communion of saints. So this is a good connection from last week. The angels and saints in heaven, all of us we're, at every Mass, they're present uh, to offer this sacrifice up to the Father to lift up our hearts in that way. So. Holy, 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 which it's kind of cool in Hebrew. They don't have superlatives. So we say uh, strong, stronger, strongest. But instead they just say holy three times, which is their way of saying this is God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory and so forth. So then we have the liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, there are Eucharistic prayers one, two, three, and four. There are certain Eucharistic prayers that you can do for certain masses, certain liturgical celebrations. But the words of consecration are always going to be the same. I can send this out too, but like the epiclesis, that's a point where I was talking about the Holy Spirit. It's when you take the pall, which is that square piece off of the chalice, you take that down. And at that point where you hear the bells rung once, it's when the priest's hands are over the chalice, all over the offerings on the altar. That's where you're asking the Holy Father to send down the Spirit to bless those that consecrate them just before that final consecration, the very words of Jesus himself at the elevation of the Eucharist and the precious blood in the chalice. But it's just a further blessing that sending this, again, the spirit in life, that's what I was talking about with the epiclesis there where then you're sending uh, down. So uh, real quick, I just wanted to point out that our Father, we pray that at every Mass. It's the greatest prayer, but I love how the catechism, the very opening part where they talk about the Lord's Prayer, uh, it says, the Lord's Prayer is truly the summary of the whole gospel. Since the Lord, after handing over the practice of prayer, said elsewhere, ask and you will receive. And since everyone has petitions, which are peculiar to his circumstances, the regular and appropriate prayer is said first as the foundation of further desires. So the next time you pray the Our Father, just really slowly go over it. Like That's a really powerful statement that the Our Father is the summary of the whole gospel. Uh, then it's the Lamb of God, distribution of Holy Communion. The altar is cleared. At that point, yeah, once you, 
after the Lamb of God, you're entering into the communion rite, which is a little bit different, still within the liturgy of the Eucharist. But after that, you have the concluding rites, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. There might be a final blessing the uh, priest will give you, but at that point, it's the concluding rites. priest sends you off to proclaim the gospel. You've now been filled with the Eucharist, the greatest gift of Jesus, literally himself. You've been united with him. Now to spread this love because it's so overfull, overflowing within you to then spread it to the nations and spend yourself and then come back next week and receive the very love that God has in store for you. So, all right. Uh, like I said, a lot of things I didn't go over. A lot in here. So if you have questions for next time or uh, for those that want to ask tonight, still you can talk to me afterwards. So, all right, we'll conclude the prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious Father, we thank you for the many blessings you have bestowed upon us, especially the gift of our lives, the gift of being a disciple, to receive the graces you desire to give us in the sacraments, and above all, in the great sacrifice of the Mass, in which we receive Jesus in the Most Holy Eucharist. We thank you for this precious treasure. And as we continue to prepare to learn more about the faith, we just ask that you send the further indwelling of the Holy Spirit to consecrate us in the truth, consecrate us in your power, which is everlasting. May we have a safe and blessed rest of this Advent season and Christmas season to come. May we spend time with our families. And for those not present with us, may we remember them and place them in your care. As we pray together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Through the intercession of St. Peter, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and at our parish website, St. Peter Lincoln.com. God bless you.